You are listening to a weekend message from New Life Church in Fort Smith. We would love to connect with you, so find us on Instagram or Facebook at NLC Fort Smith. Enjoy the message. Let me present something to you guys. This here, y'all may not know, we had a little chili cook-off on Wednesday here, first Wednesday at the church. This is the pinnacle of my culinary career. I'll tell you that right now. I have won a lot of things in my life. Okay, sports, no, never, all right? Uh, Academic stuff, not so much. Uh, But a chili cook-off at first Wednesday in October at New Life Church. Praise God, I won it. Hallelujah, I love it. It's so good, I'm happy. And I show you this to tell you, This is it. I'm done. I'm retiring. I go out on top. Like, I'm not going to keep trying. I ain't going to enter it again. I'm I'm done because it don't get any better than this. I'll also tell you, I need to put this away because it's kind of becoming an idol in my life. I got to put that down there. All right. I can't see it. I'll also tell you a few, I, I've been riding high on this uh, me cooking stuff thing. I've felt like a winner. I've been cooking things left and right, and it's been good and delicious. And, uh, but a few weeks ago, I had this thing. I'm going to cook this teriyaki chicken. Uh, and it took me about two hours. And I poured my life and heart and soul into it. I had all my spices. I was marinating the thing. I was reading the recipes. I was trying all these techniques. I was butterflying the chicken breast. Like, it was all, it was the whole thing. Like, I was real into it. And then about two hours into it, I I pulled it off the grill and I brought it inside. And Jessica was on her way home. And I took a bite of it. I said, let me see. Let me give me some of this. You know, I took a bite of that thing. I called Jessica. I said, Jessica, I'm about to make turkey sandwiches tonight because this is terrible, right? And so I had like a whole uh, cabinet full of food. And I said, all right, we got turkey sandwiches or you can eat this uh, teriyaki chicken thing. Um, and we all ate turkey sandwiches, okay? That's, everybody voted with their plates, right? Uh, I tell you all this to say, uh, the chili cook-off, my high point in life, but life is not all wins. Sometimes there are losses. And I love how the Bible doesn't sugarcoat that. And in the book of Acts, where we are today, it shows you the successes of the church, the things that they get right. But it also shows you times where there are failures in the church. And if I were writing the Bible, this passage that we're doing today, if I were writing it, I probably wouldn't put it in there the way that they put it in there. I would put the first part of what we're going to read, which is all good. It's like great stuff happening in the church. And the second part, if it were me, I would leave it out because it's not a pleasant uh, part. But thankfully, I'm not God. It's good for you and good for me. Uh, And God puts it in there for a reason. So today we're looking at a passage where the church gets it right. And then uh, we're looking at a passage where things go wrong. Okay, opening your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're first going to start at the happy place, the good stuff going on, starting in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were one of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not one needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so the early church, right? Jesus was alive. He had risen. The church is uh, started, and it is doing some stuff. Like, things are happening. Uh, they were, actually, before this passage, it talks about some of the things that were happening. It says that they were full of the Holy Spirit, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, like they were together, uh, hearing the word, growing in the word. The Bible says that God was adding to their number daily. It would be like in this church right here, we got service every day. All of our meals, we come in and we share together. Then we take the time in between. It's like first Wednesday every day. We take time to pray with one another, to hear the word, to do all of these things and grow in our faith. And then on top of all that, more and more people every day were coming into this place to a point where we couldn't even uh, seat everybody. What was happening in the early church was contagious, it was spreading quickly. People loved it. And things were going well for them. And God was blessing everything that they were doing. So when things were going right, I think there are some things that we can take away from the early church. I want to see what they did right. And I want to make sure, Lord, help us to do this right. I believe uh, that we can learn some things. So if you're taking notes, here we go. Let's jump into it. When things were right in the early church, we see the first one is this, unity. Verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Y'all remember that old piano song? Never mind. That's something that my The Bible says that they were one of heart and soul, that they walked in unity. It says, first, of the heart. Okay? When the scripture talks about the heart, it's talking about like the innermost being, like the, the core of us, the center of who we are. Like a Tootsie Pop. Was it the center of a Tootsie Pop? A nasty Tootsie Roll, right? Okay, what's at the center of the early church? It's Jesus. And you ever get around someone that like Jesus is at the center of who they are? I have, I have uh, coffee with this guy in our church. Uh, his name's Gary, and he loves the Lord. And you, you don't even have to wonder if he does. You can just kind of see it on his face. You can hear it in the way that he talks about Jesus. And so we got coffee this week. We sit down and say, how are you doing? And he just starts to tell me, this is what the Lord is doing in my life and in my heart. And he's walked with Jesus for so long, but he continues to say, this is how God is uh, shaping me and what he's molding in me. And uh, this is what I'm learning in his word. And these are the lessons. That... And as he's talking about Jesus, his face just lights up and he just glows. And you can tell this man is a man who spends time with God. 
Like he loves Jesus. And you can tell, you don't even have to wonder. That's the early church. Their hearts are unified around Christ. And it's not just emotions, but it does have some emotional stuff to it. Like they love Jesus. He said they're, uni- they have, they're one in heart. They're also one in soul. Our souls are like our mind and our will. It's what's happening right now in your head as you're sitting here and listening, what you're thinking on. And listen, I look at you, you're smiling, you look happy. I think you're listening to what I'm saying. Truth is, I don't know what you're thinking about. You know, I know there's somebody in here right now that's thinking about cheese dip that they're going to have in about 40 minutes. Like, I know that that's happening, okay? The thing that you are... The things that you're thinking on, uh, your decision making, like you're making choices with your will, these things are what's happening in your soul. So they're unified heart and soul around Jesus. And my prayer is that our church would be unified heart and soul around Jesus, that we would be of one heart and one soul around him. But how do we do that? I think. In the early church, it's because all of their attention was on the Lord. All of it. I used to play, many of you may not know this, I used to be a saxophone player. And I was like a jazz saxophone player. And we used to travel around. Like, If you were ever staying in that old hotel in Hot Springs, uh, you may have seen me there one night playing in the lobby, you know? I'd play, like, a couple of songs and do stuff. Like, I used to go around and be, like, a saxophone guy. And uh, when, when I was in high school, we had a big band. Like, it was huge. There were, like, 100 people in the band. And the first thing that we got to do when we get in there is everybody has to tune their instrument. Like, we have to all be in tune together. If we're going to play together, we got to be in tune together. And how do we do that? Well... The band director would get up, he had a little box, and this box, he would press a button, and it would make the perfect uh, pitch for the note A, and he would play an A, and it was the perfect A, and everybody all across the band, different instruments, tubas, trombones, trumpets, saxophones, clarinets, flutes, everybody, you would hear them, they'd start... They start making little adjustments here and little adjustments there. And then by the end, after about a minute, everybody would play this one note and everybody was in tune. How did they do it? They didn't do it by, let me hear you play an A and I'm going to try to tune off of you. And then let me hear you play an A and I'm going to try to tune off of you. How they do it? They listen to the one note that everybody's listening to. When you want unity in the church and the unity that they walked in heart and soul, it's because their focus, their attention is on one person. That's on Jesus. A.W. Tozer said this quote. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? They have one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers together, each one looking at Jesus, are in heart nearer to each other than they could ever be looking at each other. I think that's beautiful. 
When our eyes are all on him, we can walk in unity, being one of heart and soul. The second thing you see is great power and great grace. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. The Greek word for power there, dunamis, is where we get the English word for dynamite, okay? And the Bible says it's not regular power. He said it's great power. And that's what the early church was walking in, great power. Not just regular strength Tylenol, but extra strength Tylenol. You know what I mean? Uh, somebody told me this week, like, I don't waste my money buying 2% milk. I'm not going to pay for the water. Give me the whole milk. Give me all of it, right? That's what they're working in. They're walking in whole milk, okay? To be a witness, to boldly preach, God has given them great power so that they can preach the good news and the gospel all over the place and people can hear about Jesus. He's giving them great power, but not just that. The Bible says they also had great grace. Now, what is grace? You can write this down if you're a note taker. It's God's favor upon the undeserving. Now, who is undeserving? Hello, me. (laughs) I'll tell you, I'm undeserving of anything that God gives, but he gives it anyway. I heard this old, it's like an old preacher saying uh, for grace, G-R-A-C-E, is God's riches at Christ's expense. Like Jesus paid for all of this, so that we could walk in the grace that God gives. And so he gave the early church grace, but not just grace, great grace. That means mega grace, big time grace, so that they could walk through all the challenges that they faced. They were facing persecution. People were getting dragged off, taken to jail. People were being stoned to death. People were being threatened. They're going to talk about how they're going to tear their families apart and put one person in jail in this just because they believed the gospel and they followed Jesus. They had a lot against them, and God gave them the great grace so that they could make it through. Grace is what God gives us so that we can make it through anything that we face in life. If you're sick, you go to the doctor. He's going to give you an Allegra. He's going to give you some antibiotics and he's going to help you get better. When you're sick, you need medicine. That's what the doctor gives you. When you're needing to pay a bill, you go get a job. They send you a check in the mail. You complain about how much it is, but you cash the check and you go pay the bill. Amen. When you need money, you go to work and they send you a check. When you go to school and you have to learn something, the teacher gives you a lesson so that you can learn everything that you need to know. When you are going through life, God gives you grace so that you can get through it. The Bible says that great grace from heaven was on them. And actually, you see it coming out of them to one another. You see it in the way that they cared for one another. And the third thing that you see in the early church is radical generosity. There's some things in my house that I don't care if you, you can come over to my house, you can use, it don't matter. Like, my spoons and my forks. I don't have a favorite spoon. I don't have a favorite fork. If you come over, just take any one you want. Like, I don't care. I don't have a favorite bowl. I don't have anything like that. 
There are some things in my house that are like, don't touch it, please. This is mine, right? Uh, we have a few different categories of things, but it boils down to this. Phone chargers, lip balm, and chocolate. Like, if, if you see any of those, like, don't touch it, okay? That's mine, right? Even for my kids, my family members, <laughs> those are my things. Like, I want those things to be mine, and I don't like when any other person uses them. And one of those things, I say lip balm, but what I really mean is this thing called Burt's Bees. How many people are Burt's Bees users? Okay. How many people are chapstick people? And chapstick people, I'll pray for you. Okay, come on over to Burt's Bees. That's where it's at right now. I'm just going to tell you, I love it. I'm a Burt's Bees user. I got Burt's Bees at my in my desk right now. I have it in my desk. I got it with me when I get in my truck. And then at my house, I have a drawer. And my wife's pulling them all out of her purse because she's got them too. Probably mine, honestly. I got to check after service. I got a drawer at my house where I keep my Burt's Bees. And I know every time I need Burt's Bees exactly where it's going to be. It's going to be in my top drawer. I'm going to open it. I got my toothbrush and uh, my beard brush and I got my little thing of Burt's Bees and it sits right there. And so the other day I went to my bathroom and I said, I need my lips to get a little chap. I need some Burt's Bees. And I opened up my drawer and there were no Burt's Bees there. Now, I'll tell you the thought that never crossed my mind is, what did I do with the Burt's Bees? Because <laughs> I know what I do with the Burt's Bees. I know where it is, right? I become a total like forensic detective, okay? The house goes on locks down. I say, hey, everybody stop where you are. I start looking through everything and I, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus in this service, but I'll tell you, I opened somebody else's drawer and I saw my Burt's Bees right there in that drawer. I said, Jesus, help me. I need your grace and mercy today to give it away to other people. I took it back and put it in my drawer. Praise God. All right. There are some things in my life that I want to build a fence around, that I want to put a lock on, and I want to say nobody touched this. In the early church, they didn't have that at all. The Bible says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Like nothing that I have is just mine, but it's available to anybody in this church that needs it. This was like a radical generosity. And I will say here, this is, uh, you could think, well, okay, good. Then that's how we should all be. And the government should make it where everything belongs there. No, that's, this was not forced upon them. This is like the fruit of God working. All this stuff was voluntary. It's like God's doing something in me. So I want to help other people. This went beyond regular obedience to give. I want to talk just a minute about giving. It's something that I don't talk about very often, and I probably should. Um, the Bible talks about it a lot. But in the Old Testament, okay, this is how God set it up. Everything that you have is a gift from, a gift from above, right? So all the, uh, the crops that you spend your year, you're working the fields, you're plowing the grounds, you get, uh, you get to harvest all of these crops. You have uh, livestock and you have cattle and you have all these things. And for the believer in the Old Testament, someone that's faithful to God, he said, all right, all of this stuff I'm blessing you with. I'm giving you this. All I'm saying is I need you to bring 
10% of that, like a tenth of that, bring it back to me, okay? Bring it to the temple, bring it to the storehouse, and I have a use, once I gather 10% from everyone, I have a use uh, for those uh, harvests, those crops, those monies, all of that thing. Okay, you see this in Leviticus 27, it says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is whose? It's the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. So people would bring their tithe to God. This is still a practice that you hear us talk about today. At the end of service, they talk about if you have tithes and offerings and you're not, you didn't grow up in church, you don't know. A tithe is just a 10% of uh, whatever first income you have. So Jess and I have long been tithers, thanks to Jess, because she's uh, super faithful in that area. This is something that we do to this day. <clears throat> Being a believer, right, when you're a disciple of Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, one of the things that should mark your life is generosity, okay? Um, there are several reasons for this, but I think it's important to see how serious the Bible takes like money and how quickly our hearts get attached to money because they do. Uh, mine does too. Like I 100% have been there before because it competes for real estate in my heart. Like my love to gather riches and resources. And before you know it, instead of thinking about building God's kingdom, I become very focused on building my own. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. You know that old saying, like, money changes people? I, I prayed a lot of times, like, let me see, God. Like, just, <laughs> can I try? I promise I probably won't mess up. I don't know. I, I won't know, you know? Um, the Bible warns us that people's love for money has drawn many away from the Lord. And so I think it's very important to check yourself in this area because it's sneaky. It comes in and little by little, it attaches your heart to money and then you start to love it and you love it a little more and little more and little more until before you know it, this becomes the reason that you exist. All right. So some warning signs that I love money too much is one, I'm always thinking about making money. How can I make money for myself? How can I get money? Uh, when I become jealous of when other people have success, like if somebody gets a raise, somebody gets a bonus, somebody gets something nice and new. And I know people that when something good happens to someone else they're instead of being happy for them, you know what they say? Mm -hmm. Should have happened to me. Should have been my race. Should have been my boat. 
I don't deserve it. Like, I know people like this. When my value is determined by my bank account and the possessions that I have, rather than my identity in Jesus Christ, like, that's a sign that my heart is way too connected to money. Some people end up neglecting their family to chase after riches. When I close my eyes to like the genuine needs of people around me, like I don't want to see it. I'm just going to keep walking. I'm going to ignore the fact that people, even in the church, have needs, but uh, they need to figure it out for themselves because I always had to figure it out for myself. When I'm not someone that is generous or I don't give and I look at my life and I say, when am I, where, where am I giving to the kingdom? Like, where is that in my life? If it's not there, that's a sign that you have become attached to money. It's like, I'm keeping it all for myself. Like nothing else, nothing else. People let themselves get attached and they begin to cling to the riches of this world. And the Bible says, do not Attach yourself. Do not cling to the riches of this world. Cling to Jesus. The early church, they weren't clinging to riches. They weren't clinging to possessions, to ambition, to status. Let me tell you what they did. Let me tell you. Let me show you this. This is the best way that I can think about it. When God gives me anything in life, okay, and he puts it in my hand, And he said, here it is. Here's money. Here's influence. Here's time. Here's uh, talents. Okay. What my natural inclination is, is to do this. Yes. Thank you. This is mine. I love this. Okay. And we walk around with fists that are closed and we hold on with a firm grip of things. This can happen with money in your life, possessions, uh, ego status, how you're seen in people's eyes, like all these things. And you can hold on tight. In the early church, let me tell you how they walked around. God put something in their hand and they said, okay, what do you want me to do with it? You want to take it? Give it to someone else? You want to use this? For something else, like I'm going to walk around and I'm going to hold everything with an open hand. And as I follow you, Jesus, and as the Holy Spirit leads my heart and my life, if he says, take this and put it in their hand, you know what? My hands are open. I'm not holding it with a grip. This is what you see happen with Barnabas. He comes in, verse 36, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him. Like God put the field in his hand and he sold it, money in his hand. And then what did he do? He brought the money and he laid it at the disciples' feet. What I would naturally want to do is, yes, we just made a ton of money on this land. And what he did is he said, okay, I'm going to lay this down. This is for you, Lord. This is for your church. And my question to you today that we all need to ask ourselves is, what is it that I'm clinging to? What am I holding with a closed fist? When things were right in the church and they were going right, you know what they were holding on to? Just Jesus. Everything else with an open hand. But when things went wrong, this is going to be the part where the story takes a turn. 
chapter five. Now a man named Ananias, together with his stepwife, uh, stepwife, <laughs> together with his wife, Sapphira. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. That's good. All right. Together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Look, he did the same thing. On the outside, when you were looking at this, it's the same thing Barnabas did. Like me and you were just watching it, it looked just like what Barnabas did. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? And what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, finding her, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What a terrible story. And I read this, and this is one of the ones I said, man, I wouldn't. I don't know if I would have put this in there. Because it's, you read it, it's like sad. It's shocking. This is not uh, one for your bathroom mirror that you read in the morning. You know what I mean? It's like, it ain't that. I think there's a reason, obviously there is, that God leaves it in here and tells us about it. What is the reason? Well, first, when you're looking at the early church, they had so much opposition, people coming against them. I told you before, they're being arrested, they're being killed, they're being stoned to death, uh, they're being separated from their families, they're being threatened with all sorts of things. Like, all this stuff is coming from the outside to persecute the church. There's all these external things happening to the church. But the church was still growing. It was getting stronger by the day. The gospel message was spreading. And so the enemy shifts his tactics here to just attacking the church from the outside. He starts to attack it from the inside. And he said, well, if I can't stop them this way, I'll stop them from the inside out. And so uh, there's actually several things in this passage that we could go through. But I'm just going to give you one. And it's this. When things went wrong in the early church, you know what we see? We see a selfish heart. Whereas before, people are freely giving and holding everything with an open hand. You see people now that have come in with a closed hand. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? 
that you lied to the Holy Spirit and kept from yourself some of the money you received from the land. Look at the language that Peter uses here. He says, your heart has been filled by Satan. That's tough. What are we supposed to be filled with? Filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that Ananias and Sapphira didn't sit down and say, oh, Satan, I wish you'd filled my heart today. Like that didn't happen, but I'll tell you how I think it probably happened. They saw Barnabas sell his land, bring the money in, lay it at the apostles' feet. And then everybody was probably like, wow, how generous. Barnabas, what a guy, you know. Did you hear what Barnabas did? And they saw that and they said, man, I like that. Probably people writing articles and putting posts up about Barnabas on, you know, Jerusalem Residence Forum, like a whole thing, right? It's being popular guy. They see that and they say, we have some land we aren't using. What if we sold the land that we have and we took that money to the temple? then they would look at us the way they look at Barnabas. And they would say good things about us the same way that they say good things about him. That sounds good. I like that. And then they think, well, you know, people don't even have to know how much money we sold this thing for. Like, I bet you if we took in like half of it, they would still be like, wow. So we should just like keep some of it but then go in and tell them, like, we're doing the same thing Barnabas did. We sold our land. Here's all the money. And so that's what they did. I bet you when Satan filled their heart with something, it probably just started as one little thought. What if we did this? It's the same way that he did it in the garden. Remember with Eve and the fruit? He said, did God really say that you couldn't eat this? Because if you ate it, it'd be good for you. Like you'd be like him. You could see good and bad, all this stuff. The same way he comes to Ananias and Sapphira. That's why the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, we have to take every thought captive to obey Christ because the ones that we entertain from the enemy. We begin to think on them and think on them and dwell on them and they go from just our head, they get planted in our hearts. And then when that grows in our hearts, it ends in destruction every time. This is how the enemy works. And the thing is that's so sad to me is that Ananias and Sapphira, there's nothing wrong with them owning the land. It's good. It's good that they do. There's nothing wrong with them selling the land and keeping the money. That's what Peter says. He's like, hey, didn't you own this land? Didn't you sell the land and have the money? Wasn't it yours? Like, you didn't have to bring any of this stuff in. In fact, there's nothing wrong with them having the land, selling the land, taking 10%, their tithe, and bringing it and saying, here you go. Here's our tithe. Like, there's nothing wrong with any of that. What was wrong? It was that they wanted everyone to think they had given everything 
Like they see me and they think, wow, these guys. It was the dishonesty in their heart to get the praise of men so that they could be elevated in their status among the church. That was the sin. And I I saw this quote this week. It was flaunting spiritual beauty that they did not possess. They thought they were just lying to people. Peter said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. That is like the ultimate play dumb games, win dumb prizes thing. Like, it's God, right? You can't lie to God. He knows. But the fruit of the selfish heart came out as dishonesty. Ultimately, what, it, what was it? Ananias and Sapphira, they were clinging to some things. They want the praise of men. They want the desire for status. And ultimately, they want to keep the riches of this world. Like those things had a hold on them and they were holding on with all their might. God dealt swiftly with their sin. And you read this and you say, man, why did he do it? And there's a whole thing about the holiness of God I don't have time to get into. But you do need to know this. Instead of just saying, like, why did you do that? Knowing full well, we've probably done the same things or worse. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever held on to something that God said to let go? All these things. Instead of saying, why did you do that? Say, thank you, God, for the mercy and the grace that you have shown me. The Bible says that he is patient, he is kind with us, and that his kindness for us and his kindness to us exists to lead us to repentance. Like all the things in our life that we messed up on, he's been kind and gracious. It's not because he doesn't care about our sin, it's that he's hoping that we get it right, that we bring it to him. He's giving us time and space, drawing us and calling us to repentance. And so instead of just saying, why did this happen? Say, thank you, God, that you've been kind and gracious with me and patient. Thank you.